You are listening to the sermon series, Judges, Thrones of the Heart, from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. To find out more about our church, visit hixcc.org. We are continuing in the book of Judges. Today, we're going to be summarizing chapters 4 and 5. This is one of those weeks where I said if I read the whole thing, it would literally take up half our time. It's two chapters, so I'm going to try to give you the, the base summary. If you haven't read it yet, read it this afternoon. It's good to just walk your way through the chapter on your own, too. Um, this shows a really common thing in ancient texts. Chapter 4 is a history. Chapter 5 is a poetry. It's about the exact same story. It happens many times in ancient texts. happens in the Bible a lot, too. Um, and so we're going to focus mostly on chapter 4, the history, um, because otherwise you'd be singing the rest of the time in ancient Hebrew. So I wasn't going to do that to you this morning. Um, but I'm going to make it super easy. Remember how I mentioned a couple weeks ago where I said, parents, ask your kids, what did they get out of service today? Um, students, this is a freebie, okay? Because I'm going to say it over and over again. And we're all going to say it over and over again. So the point of today's sermon, the through line to chapters 4 and 5 is this. God gets the glory. Let's say it all together so you can lock it into your memory. What's the, what's the through line of today's passage? Say it with me. 3, 2, 1. God gets the glory. Okay? We're going to say that a lot today. The beginning of our text starts that cycle again. Israel forgets God and does what is evil in his sight. They worship the other gods of the land. God doesn't get the glory. So the Lord gives them to their new rulers, the new gods that sit on the thrones of their hearts. Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar, is the man who sits on the earthly throne in this saga. But the main villain of the story is his commander, Sisera who had 900 chariots of iron and uses them to oppress the people of Israel for 20 years. Then the first of our three heroes is introduced into the story, Deborah, a prophetess. She is a judge in the land. In this case, a literal judge in the land, the way we think about it. She summons our second hero, Barak, the prophetess, prophesizes, Deborah tells Barak to gather 10,000 men, that God's going to draw out Sisera, and God will give Sisera into Barak's hand. Notice who gets the glory. Say it with me. God gets the glory. Barak gives her an ultimatum, says, I need you, Deborah, come with me. And she does. But in the process, she delivers another prophecy, that Barak would not get to be used to kill Sisera but God would give him over to the hands of a woman. They go to the battlefield the Lord has chosen near a river. And it is implied in chapter 5 that it's the river itself that is the ultimate tool used for God to foil Sisera and his mighty chariots. Sisera is routed in the battle. He flees like a cowardly commander. Flees to whom he thinks is an ally who is our third hero within the story that is Yael. Um, in, in English, we say J's. They don't have J's in, in Hebrew. But So Jael. Everyone say Jael with me. In the south, we call her Jael with a nail. Okay? 
but that's Southern interpretation. The Jael, the, Jael, the wife of Heber and the Canite, she hides him in her tent, offers him milk, and then drives a, pe a peg through his head as he sleeps. Another moment that you will not find in a children's storybook Bible. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. God subdued. And Israel pressed the battle to him, and he was destroyed. And when the false rulers are removed from the heart of Israel again, God gets the glory. And there was rest for 40 years. Let's pray together. Father God, as we examine a good text that you've given us this morning, one that is, um, seems like it belongs in a Hollywood film more than in an Old Testament scripture, Lord, may we remember that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete for every good work. We can use even this to hone our hearts towards the Almighty God. And so, Lord, may we see the big picture of this story as it unfolds for us before us. And may it begin to sanctify us, to press the idols, that wage war against us, and who many times we make offering to. your son's name I pray. Amen. Let's examine the text closer to see the themes that fall under the big theme of, say it with me, God gets the glory. Judges 4, 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hezeroth, Hagarim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. We see in the opening section of this chapter the introduction of the main villain. The opening line really plays out kind of like the opening crawl of a Star Wars movie, right? It immediately gives us where we're at in the story and tells us what the villain is doing. If Canaan and Hazor do sound familiar to you, that's because they are familiar to the um, original readers. In Joshua chapter 11, the book that comes before Judges, Joshua has actually already conquered this city. He has overthrown the king of this city. However, the judges, the people, the tribes of Israel, did not handle the other tribes in the land at the time. And so those other tribes in the years that has gone by have grown, and then they have literally taken up the mantle of a dead empire and nation use the same language, use the same city, and have re-propped up this God. Also, I don't want you to miss, is the fact that if you notice the iron chariots again, it's another familiar moment, right? 900 iron chariots, where did they come from? Actually, Judges 119. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had what? Chariots of iron. 
So because of leaving the inhabitants of the land, because of not trusting God to fight the battles earlier, now the iron chariots and the inhabitants oppress Israel, which provide us with a rich truth that we do not want to miss this morning. And that is this. If you don't deal with the sins in your life now, they are going to come back to harm you later. Now, yes, I get all of us are going to sin. But I'm talking about the sinful habits, the sinful lifestyles that we engage in, that we think, this won't harm me. This is fine. I can do this on the side, and everything will be okay. That is not the case. Sin gives us this illusion all the time. Neglecting the commandments of God lead to oppression and suffering. And yet, many of us like to keep our pet sins around because we're convinced we can handle them. Of course, we can make sure those sins serve us instead of us serving them. Think of it this way. I can keep my porn habit. It won't hurt anybody. I can keep bitterness and unforgiveness around. They give me a sense of authority. I don't have to deal with my anger issue. I'm going to need that anger issue when that person comes walking through the front door. We keep pet sins around because they are useful to us in uncomfortable situations, or they feed our pleasures, or both. <laughs> we keep pet sins around because they are useful to us in uncomfortable situations, or feed our pleasures, or both. Just as Israel kept foreign gods around because, well, they're useful to them in uncomfortable situations, and they do a very good job of feeding immediate pleasures. And when we do this, hear this, God gets no glory. We demonstrate to God that his offer of shalom, his offer of peace, is simply too costly. That Jesus is not enough. We tell God we need Jesus and, and you can fill in that blank. Church, if you know what sin sits on the throne of your heart, if you know what it is, Put it to death before it becomes too powerful that it leads to oppression and suffering, right? I, this meme popped up on my Facebook feed this week, sin and the consequences of sin. I've been that kid. I've ridden that slide. I'm from Florida too, so it's like 110 degrees on a metal slide. Why they put, 100, why they put metal slides in Florida, I have no idea, but they're everywhere. So it just cuts like butter, right? Or in the words of John Owen, which this, his quote here sounds more like it belongs in 20th century hip-hop than it does from a 17th century pulpit. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Which is what happens in Israel. Sin overwhelms them, and they become one of the initial villains in the story. Notice how they're listed in Judges 4.1. And the people of Israel again did what, was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he had died. Israel is just as much of a villain here. They don't deserve pity. Yet, the Lord our God grants them pity and mercy when they cry out to him. Yahweh God is not a fair God. Amen. For he will still 
hear our cries, when we call out to him, even when we don't deserve it. And many times that happens in the form of a person. He'll bring someone in our lives to challenge us, to rescue us, to disciple us, to mentor us, to just come alongside us and help us. And we see that in today's story. We actually see three persons. Let me talk about the first hero, Deborah. She is the one judge in the book of Judges that does not do any conquering. She is a judge that leads beyond the battlefield. While she is not a ruler of Israel, she is held in very high regard. She is seen as a wise counselor and a judge. People come to her to settle all sorts of disputes. Deborah is a leader who leads with wisdom and character rather than sheer might. And she functions as a prophetess in Israel. Well, what's a prophetess? A prophetess is one who preaches and teaches the word of God. Both in its application to everyday life, we see that in the way that she judges, and she's going to make prophecies as the mouthpiece of God as she speaks to Barak and the army. Deborah reminds us of this, that God's chosen leader doesn't just rescue, but also rules. God's chosen leader doesn't just rescue, but also rules. While the stories of the previous judges haven't shown us this up to this point, it can be assumed within the text. All we hear up to this point from Othniel and Shamgar and Ehud are the conquering stories, right? But while they were judging in the land, the land had what? Rest. So they were clearly doing something during their time as some sort of leader in which there was rest in the land. And this reminds us that God's chosen leader not only rescues, but he rules. And when they died, and Israel was no longer with a leader, they quickly filled the thrones of their heart with something or someone else. Next comes our next hero, Barak. Barak comes at the behest of Deborah. We can assume, because Deborah is a character of honor, that Barak too is a character of honor. He has the honor of leading the Lord's army. But as we're going to see in the story, it is not Deborah who gets the glory. It is not Barak who gets the glory. Who is it that gets the glory? Maybe, maybe you've heard it before. Say it with me. God gets the glory. The discussion between Deborah and Barak has been read in two separate ways, one pessimistic and the, about Barak and the other optimistic about Barak. So let me deal with that real quick. The more pessimistic view about Barak and Deborah's conversation sees Barak as um, refusing to go without Deborah's um, coming with him as a lack of faith, which seems implied in some translations of the text. Barak, however, is commended for his faith in Hebrews 11. The pessimistic view sees this faith only taking root as he charges down Mount Tabor with his men to conquer Sisera. The pessimistic view sees the rebuke of Barak for his lack of obedience in Judges 4.9. That's what it takes it as. It's like, this must be a rebuke and the consequences that followed. The more optimistic view rests on the fact that in Hebrews and Judges 4.9, that that, that uh, verse is more literal than figurative. A figurative translation 
would talk about the course on which he's on, you've made a bad decision. While a literal translation would read, the road in which you're on, which is literally the road that he took to conquer Sisera. She's just stating a fact if you hold to the optimistic view. The road you are taking, the actual road you will taking, will lead to battle. And Sisera will flee from the battle while you are there, and Sisera will be delivered into the hands of a woman. Is Deborah, is Deborah just delivering prophecy, as a matter of fact, or is she making a moral rebuke of Barak? That's the question that is before us in the text. Here, this is these conversations that happen within theology. These are those like tertiary, fourth level things. You can hold to either view and still be a Christian, okay? Everyone catch your breath. It's fine, okay? And so you got to make a you got to make a decision. I personally hold to the more optimistic view. Um, I, I'm inclined to see Barak as a hero and an example of faith. When I hear that Barak wants to take Deborah with him, that's not disobedience anywhere in Scripture. How do you dare you take a prophetess with you? That's not anywhere. And as a judge, she has the right to be at the battle. He is recognizing her faith in the moment. Further, his faith is showing courage against overwhelming odds. His faith is showing courage against overwhelming odds. Look, when we read 10,000 men versus 900 chariots, most of us are thinking, that's 10 to 1 odds. We kind of like those odds, right? That sounds good for the people of Israel. Most of us have never stared down an iron chariot going 20 miles an hour for, towards us. And we don't exactly have the best weapons to take on, I don't know, iron, right? This is still overwhelming odds against Barak and his men. There's a reason these 900 chariots have oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. So his faith is actually to be commended. He's still going in against the odds. By grace, God would win the battle for him. The other reason I take the optimistic view is that it follows from the overall through line of the story, which is God gets the glory. As an example of what faith is, what is faith in this moment? Faith is humble and not honor-seeking. Faith is humble and not honor-seeking. Brock says, Deborah, come with me. He's clearly not being arrogant in this section. I don't need you, woman. That's not Barak here. And when he is told that he will not get the glory, does he go off and pout? Nope. He still faithfully leads his men into battle. Why? Barak has faith. And in his faith, say it with me, God gets the glory. Hero 3, Jael. Jael. I go back and forth. This hero is much like the previous judge, Ehud. Remember last week, one of the main themes was the Lord uses who he chooses. So while we have an idea of who's going to take out the big bad of the story, or we have our own ideas of what who God should use to take out the big bad of the story, God has a very different idea. This slide is not in your bulletin, but it should help you understand Jael a little bit more. God here chooses a non-Jew. He also chooses a woman. Women don't participate the vast majority of time in history at this point in battle. They don't. But he's going to use a woman here. 
God uses an ally of Sisera. Sisera goes to her and thinks, I'm safe. And then Jael breaks two laws. Turning on an ally and do them no harm under their roof. Those were like common understandings in most cultures, right? Hopefully you have those laws when, you come to your, when I come over to your house, right? After an incident like this, I don't know how many friends are going to be accepting a dinner request from Jael, right? But God uses this to humiliate his enemy. And also in the process, Deborah is proved true while God gets the glory. Notice how at the end of all three of these heroes' journeys, where the glory goes. Judges 4, 22 through 23. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Even the text makes it clear who gets the glory after all these three heroes are used. In chapter 4, God is only mentioned four times. In chapter 5, he's all over the place. Because again, chapter 5 is more poetic and more theological. The glory to God goes throughout this chapter. Just here are a few bars of it, right? Judges 5.2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hero kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Judges 5.5, the mountains quaked before who? The Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Matthew 5, 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Okay, maybe the glory is going to the people here. Bless the Lord. Aha. Tricked you. It immediately brings it back to the glory of God. And then it ends. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. You hopefully get the point, say it with me one last time, God gets the glory. Does God get the glory in your life? If someone were to have followed you around last five days, five weeks, five years, what would that person say gets the glory in your life? What, what person or desire or action dictates the majority of your actions and decisions? Is it your family that gets the glory? Is it sports that get the glory? Is it your job that gets the glory? Or is it, or is it just yourself? That gets the glory. Pastor, are you saying those things are bad? By no means. Family, good. Sports, good. Self, good, right? But those things are best ordered 
in your life when they fall under the glory of God. Not when they usurp the glory of God. The whole sermon series, if you look at the front of your bulletin, has a subtitle, right? Judges, Thrones of the Heart. And one of the things that we get to do as a congregation as we look at this book is that we get to examine what are the thrones that currently sit on my heart. What are the actions and decisions or persons or hobbies that control my life in such a way that they are a main motivator in all my decisions? We get to do that. And we get to order them properly. Because if we don't, they will become a minor deity. Here's a few real life stories that hopefully make the point. There is a story of a woman whose glory was found in her body. Not like Instagram model, like not that, okay? But she was obsessed with her health. What she put in her body was very important to her. She spent hours researching, planning, focusing on what to put in her body every week. She attended natural health conferences where she spent major amounts of money to find the latest thing that will bring healing and health where there might not have been present before. She talked about her health stuff all the time. It was the first thing that she brought up at prayer group. And when her health began to break down, she began to break down. For she must have done the wrong thing with her body. The equation suddenly didn't add up anymore. Health was her deity of choice. And when things went well, her health coach, health program, got all the glory. And when her health failed her, she did not know what to do. There's a story of a man who found his glory on the football field. He spent 15 years of his life around the game of football. It was all-encompassing. Money was spent to make himself better. Time was spent to hone his body. Late nights were spent watching game film. And accolades led to awards, led to scholarships, led to a red shirt first season, and then to a starting role on the team. And when an injury took away his playing career, he was left wondering what to do. The deity on the throne of his heart had left him with nothing. My story, my idol for years was my reputation. I did not get close to people in high school or college. I figured they could know enough about me to like me, but not enough about me to dislike me. Wear the right mask around the right people and you get the right applause. Self was an idol. I didn't want to risk People not liking what they saw, so I never let them see me. So I just gave them enough to satisfy whatever desire they needed. But intimacy, vulnerability, honesty would be different and, and, and distant options to my detriment and to theirs. Now, is health a good thing? Yes. Is football a good thing? Yes. What time's the Eagles game, Nick? Three. Is reputation 
a good thing. Yes. At what cost? At what cost? There is always a cost associated with glory. There is always a sacrifice to be made to whatever deity sits on the throne of your heart. We need to order our lives in such a way that even good things fall into the right place. For it is when good things become ultimate things that we suddenly find ourselves in a very similar situation to the people and judges. We need to humble ourselves. Hear this. Jesus is the only deity that pays the cost for his own glory. Every other deity on the thrones of our hearts demands sacrifice as trade for acceptance. Jesus does not. Take health. This is a, these are true people, by the way. I'm not just making them up. This is, the, the, in this, in, in the lady's words, it had become an idol. Those were her words. The importance of her health wasn't to use it to bring glory to God. It was to show everyone that she had finally figured out the human body. If you do this, you'll be fine. Take football. In the man's words, it had become an idol. It was what defined him. It was the end in itself. He did not use it to bring glory to God. Take reputation. Was it to exalt my own? All the hoops I jumped through to keep people at a distance? Absolutely. It was not to exalt Jesus' reputation. Does God, does God get the glory in your life? This is not just a theme of judges. This is one of those themes that is introduced, that I introduced early and continues to be echoed over and over and over again throughout Scripture. Let's see a couple more of these verses. I had to choose. There's like a list of 150 of these. Okay. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is much easier with a really nice steak, medium rare. Thank God, right? Do it to the glory of God. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Even our good works, they're not about us. Look at me. No, I do this because my Father in heaven. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are how many things? couple, all, all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. John 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the question becomes, how can your life bring glory to God? How can your life bring glory to God? There's a lot of different ways I could have gone here. So I tried to, I took it in the direction of how can we order our lives, because I've already mentioned that, right? How do we order our lives? How do we order ourselves in the things that we're already doing to bring glory to God? 
there are five elements of spiritual formation. And this is really just five elements of formation. This is how the Lord has made us. And if we do these things under the glory of God, they are to our benefit. They can be incorporated into other things in your life that are important to you to make sure that they don't become an idol, but Jesus stays on the throne. And further, these five elements we're already involved in. The question is, on what throne of your heart do these five elements dictate who the glory goes to? I'm going to answer them from a Christian perspective. Here are five elements to Christian formation. First one is time. What you spend your, your time doing is where you will put the glory. It tells us who your God is. Now, it doesn't have to be the most time, right? Most of us in here have 40 to 50 hour work weeks. Many of us also have 40 to 50 hours of schooling or sports teams or something else, right? So clearly that's going to take up the vast majority of your time. Hopefully sleep takes up a large chunk of your time too, right? Some of you are like, amen, that is a throne on my heart, right? But it is what do you do, how do you spend the time that you do have? Do you give any of your time to God? Do you incorporate him in other activities or relationships that you're already in? You can do this in many places. We've talked about this with prayer when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? We can pray with, when, our, when we're with our families. We can pray at the workplace. We can incorporate moments with God throughout the course of our day. Are you giving time God? Are you giving God time? Or... Is he only present when he's convenient? I'll give God time if I have time. That's a statement that reveals that yourself and your time is on the glory seat. Second element, habits. We all have habits. They're either intentionally forming or unintentionally forming, but you have habits. You can't escape it, good and bad. We need to identify the habits that govern our lives and identify who is on the throne of that governance. Jesus speaks of spiritual habits, prayer, fasting, giving, gathering. Are any of those habits in your life? If they're not yet, intentionally weave them in to the day-in-day habitual nature of your life. How are you incorporating these? Third is intimacy. This is a very hard, this was a very hard one for me early in my Christian walk. Here's the question. Who or what do you share your heart with? Who or what do you share your heart with? We are designed by our very nature to be in relationships. Even us introverts, right? Introverts in the room, you just like one or two relationships, okay? You extroverts in the room, you, you can't collect enough. They're like Pokemon, right? Got to catch them all. 
who or what are you being intimate with? We are created for intimacy. Here's the scary part. Some of us have been so traumatized by intimacy that we run away from it. But who we are intimate with will shape our desires, heal or hurt our hearts from the many plagues of this world. Do you have someone in this church that you can be intimate with? You, whom you can share what is really going on in your life? Or are you coming here and you're putting on a great theatrical performance? You got your church mask that you make sure is well make up before you come in in the car. And when everyone asks you, how you doing? You always respond with fine which according to the great theologian Will Smith is just freaked out, insecure, narcotic, and emotional, right? That's what fine is. Are you putting on a church mask? Or are you willing to be intimate? May church not become a performance space. Fourth element, community. Everyone craves it. Who you surround yourself with will have great impact on who is on the throne of your life. This is just human nature. It's just human nature. Fifth element is instruction. Who is instructing you? Who do you listen to? What news station or podcast fills your ears on a regular basis? How are you being instructed? How often are you being instructed? Or, I'm sure this is, a, hopefully, I think it's a small majority in our church, or do you run away from instruction? You're too good for instruction. I know everything I need to know. The Bible has a lot to say about fools, and that's the number one like, definition of it. I don't need to be instructed. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So who is doing it? How often are you being instructed? We rolled out at our last member meeting the vision statement for our church. And it's this, everyone a disciple. We want everyone who is a member of our church, who even comes to our church on a regular basis, to be a worshiper, a follower, and a witness for Jesus. That, that's, that's the goal. That's where we're heading. And the main vehicle we are going to be using to make disciples in Hicksville which is, I think, what God calls us to do when we look at the Great Commission, is to start discipleship groups. We've begun this. Okay, for those of you that are not in on what's happening, we had eight people go through discipleship groups last summer, and those eight have started their own discipleship groups, and now we have about 35 people going through discipleship groups right now, with the hope that many of them will multiply and have start discipleship groups next fall. And then that'll multiply, double and triple. And then that'll, you get the point, right? The hope is that in five years, the majority of us are involved in some sort of discipleship relation throughout the course of the year. Now it's going to look different for many people, right? Because all of us have different seasons of life we go through. But this is the hope. Why? because we're leaning in those discipleship groups into the five elements of spiritual formation. We need to be doing this. It's what God calls us to do. 
to really know one another, to really know ourselves so that we can in turn give God the glory. That's the purpose at the end of the day. Everyone a disciple. To what end? So everyone can be a disciple. We can all wear the discipleship badges. Call it a check mark. I'll get a certificate. That's America, right? No. We want to order our lives in such a way in which the glory of God is manifested in our lives as we interact with people around us in Hicksville, in our spheres of influence, and to the very ends of the earth. Discipleship groups lean into the five elements of spiritual formation. They help us grow. They, they help us, it's a big theological word, sanctify us into the image of God. Because something or someone will always be on the thrones of our heart. And that will ultimately determine our eternal destiny. Along with our human one. What Jesus offers is not just flourishing in the next life. He also offers us hope and peace in this life, no matter what comes. And it is when we order our lives to the glory of God that we actually begin to see this happen. For one of the outcomes of ordering your life to the glory of God is joy. And it is from a heart of joy that the glory of God is proclaimed from our lips. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My prayer is that our heart hymnal would reflect the old hymn by Fanny Crosby, To God Be the Glory. Some of you may know that one that your heart would begin to sing songs like this in all activities and in all circumstances of life, good and hard. For it is a good reminder. If you know it, you can sing along. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Who yielded his life for atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come. To the Father, through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he has done. May that be a song from our hearts as we sing to whatever is on the throne in our hearts. And may it be Jesus. Bow your heads with me.